Well, while we're still on children, I want you to think with me for a minute um, about your childhood for a second. I want you to think, if you could, about something that you um, did when you were little that you were actually really good at, that right now it might seem kind of funny or silly, but you were good at it when you were little. Now, I'll start. I'll start. All right. When I, uh, when I grew up, I was good at uh, bodyboarding. That's right. You would expect that just looking at me now, wouldn't you? Like, you look at me and you think, that's a guy who could bodyboard really well in the ocean, right? Doesn't anybody think that? Getting a lot of blank stares right now. Getting a lot of blank stares. So I grew up in the Caribbean, right? So I grew up in the Caribbean. Parents are missionaries. And so I was in the ocean a lot, and I got good at bodyboarding. The other thing I was good at, ready for this, I was good at marbles. I would likely take your marbles if we played at recess in elementary school. I would likely do that. I was also good at ping pong, all right? Some of you heard me say before, but we called it table tennis where I grew up, by the way. That's the right and proper name for it. Ping pong is whatever, but table tennis is what real people call it. I was good at table tennis, and I even played a game to a thousand one time with my friend. I think I told you all that before, right? Played a game to a thousand, and I was good at it, and people didn't want to play me after a while because I kept playing table tennis. All right, so there you go. That's your starter. Now, for real, you talk to each other, turn to a neighbor, and tell them, hey, here's something that I was good at when I was a kid that right now might seem silly, but man, I was good at it. Go ahead. I'm, I'm going to give you 10 seconds. I'm going to give you a second. Ready? Go. Five, four, three, two, one. All right. Uh, hey, shout some things out. Let's just do that real quick. Shout some things out. What were you good at? Or what did you learn your neighbor was good at that they're not going to want to say, but you can say now because you know it? What do you, what do you, what do you got? What are you good at? Pogo stick. Oh, I like it. I like it. That's good. I'm not going to ask if you want to do it right now or not, but all right. Good. What else? Training chickens. Training chickens. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's really awesome. Are you still good at it or not? No, yeah, that's actually a yes. You are, aren't you, Pam? Okay, that's good. What else? What else? What's in? Hula hoop. All I heard was boo. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. But if you're good at that, you're pretty awesome. Okay, hula hoop. Thank you. That's great. Good. I'm, I was always terrible at hula hoop. All right, one more. One more. Anybody else? Rubik's Cube, oh, that's really good. That, that, that's, that's really hard for me, but all right, Rubik's Cube, for sure, for sure. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, when I, like, take bodyboarding for me, for example, like, I became good at it, and take all these things that you're good at, and here's the principle from that, and that is what you're good at gives you your platform, all right? If we're talking about platform, I want to just talk for a minute about platform this morning. What you're good at gives you your platform. You become known as someone who's good at whatever, bodyboarding, ping pong, training chickens, hula hoop, you know, Rubik's Cube, whatever it might be, you know, pogo stick, you become good at that, and people get, you get known for, okay, this is a guy who can do that, this is a girl who can do that, that just is kind of natural, right? So, for me, that's kind of the way it was in Barbados, and, and I would say this, like, having a, a platform is normal, but the issue is how we act on it is really what matters. You have a platform that you get to stand on based on what you can do, and the gifts that God has given you, and your natural abilities, but the issue is, how do you act on that stage once the platform has been built? So, for me, as a kid, um, I was good at bodyboarding, and we, when we had missions teams come in from America, do you think those teams were any good, like, like I was? And the answer is no, and I, I was very judgmental in my spirit. I'm like, what's wrong with these dumb Americans who can never bodyboard? 
Like they try to catch a wave after it's already crested. They think that they can get on it then. Like that's not when you get on it. You have to get on it way earlier. You have to catch the tidal current before the wave actually breaks. And then all these silly Americans think, oh, look, it's about to break. I'm going to jump into the wave. And then I'm acting on this platform. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm acting on this platform and I'm like, whoa, like how judgmental of me. Like how judgmental of me. And I began to ask the question like, you know, I... It, I where, where am I functioning from? Like, because it's easy, and I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to think that we build our own platforms. It was easy for me to think, listen, the reason I'm good at it is because I'm the one who did all this. Like, I put in the work to be a good bodyboarder, and this is why I'm, I'm good at it. And I began to ask the question only later in life, and that is this, like, who or what should get credit for my platform? Who or what should get credit for my platform? And when I don't ask this question, when I don't ask this question, it allows me to just assume that the things that I'm good at doing, I'm good at because I'm good at it. I put in the work to bodyboard. And I forget, I forget, <laughs> I, I, I have the, been given the grace of being able to grow up in a Caribbean island. My parents drove me to the beach. I live in a home where I'm protected and taken care of. I have the opportunities that nobody else has, and I forget that when I'm 10 years old, 8 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old. I forget these things. And I begin to think, well, I'm good at what I do just because I'm good at it. I'm good at it. Now, the problem for this, and this is not just about bodyboarding, I realized later in life that I began to build a spiritual platform. I became good at doing spiritual things. I went to a Bible college. I went on to a seminary. Um, I became, uh, uh, in the eyes of my peers, a spiritual leader of some kind, and I began to be good at praying, good at reading my Bible, good at studying Greek and Hebrew. I became good at doing some spiritual things, and I began to build my own platform. It's one thing to be proud and arrogant about bodyboarding, but it's another thing to be proud about your spiritual platform. It's another thing to allow kind of a, the blind spot to exist in your life where people will look at you and say, oh, this is someone who knows God and is close to him. It's one thing to, to say, well, that's one thing when you're bodyboarding. It's a completely other thing when you're trying to introduce people to God and you realize, like, at some point, I wasn't even asking the question, who or what should get credit for the very platform that I'm standing on? This morning in this series called Backstory, what I want to do is take us to a story of someone in the Old Testament who had an incredible platform, who had, I would argue, one of the world's biggest platforms had some of the greatest influence in the history of the world. And I want to ask the question, like, who or what helped build his platform? And I want to speak to and, and talk about kind of what, what comes behind and what starts, what gives us, what gives us the very platforms that we function on. And I want to talk about uh, the challenge sometimes of spiritual pride that can come in, that can harden our hearts, that can blind us, from it even in our own lives and the impact of it in each of us. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, which is the first uh, book in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, first book in your Bible. Genesis uh, chapter 12 is where we're going to start because we're looking at a, a man today uh, named Abraham. And in this series called Backstory, what we're doing is we're taking the backstory of the stories of people in the Old Testament in particular and looking at them maybe from a little bit of a different angle and asking some questions about them. Uh, and then reflecting also in our lives. So today I'm going to spend a little bit of time in Genesis, but I also then want to open my life up to you a little bit more later on 
and then ask some application questions for you. So sharing some of my own story this morning as well. So beginning in Genesis chapter 12, um, we're going to start with what's called, a, the, uh, it's the opening covenant, we call it, with Abraham that God is making. So in Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, here's what we read. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is, in the Old Testament, the opening um, kind of seed idea for the, the covenant that God is going to make with Abraham. In a minute, we'll read the chapter where he actually cuts or makes the covenant with him, but this is the opening kind of promise to Abraham. And there's three words that um, theologians and Bible scholars often use to describe the Abrahamic covenant, that God promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. All right? Land, seed, and blessing. Isn't that fun? In fact, that's so fun. Let's do that. Let's say that together because this is going to be so much fun. I can tell you're into repeating these things. Ready? Let's do it. Land, seed, and blessing on three. One, two, three. Land, seed, and blessing. Thank you. So the land was this promise of a land that the nation of Israel would be able to take. The seed is that all people would be, that, that Abraham would have an abundance, if you will, of, of people or seed follow him. He would be blessed and be the father of many nations. Uh, and that the blessing would be ultimately this blessing of God that would come through him and to all people under him, making up in the Old Testament the nation of Israel who were under the covenant of God. And so Abraham's covenant that's about to be cut with him is this huge, huge deal. It's incredibly massive in its uh, reach. In fact, the people even, even today, um, our Jewish friends, would still, in many cases, hold to the power and the binding promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 15 where we can see this covenant being cut. So just flip over a couple of uh, pages. We call it the cutting of a covenant because you'll see why in Genesis chapter 15. Beginning at verse 7, God said to him, He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, verse 17, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. From the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. That's our test for the elders, by the way, if they can become an elder, if they can repeat all those names quickly. So here's the cutting of what we call a covenant. And what that, what's happening in there is that these animals are cut in two, 
And in the Old Testament times, what, what happens is that the two parties of that covenant walk between those severed animals. The reason they do that is they're essentially saying, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me. All right? May this happen to me. So that's a pretty binding promise. It's a little bit more than our mortgage agreements, you know. Uh, but that's kind of the way it was. So in this situation, it's really unique and really important to notice that what happens here in verse 17 and then um, further, but verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. What you see happening here is really tremendously unusual, and that is the one that God is making the covenant with actually never has the opportunity himself to walk through those pieces. And God himself, and represented, represented by this smoking fire pot, is the only one to walk through those pieces. Now what that means is that this covenant is only contingent upon the person who walks through them. It is therefore what we call an unconditional covenant. Meaning Abraham is now the recipient of all the blessings of land, seed, and blessing. And none of it is contingent upon him performing. God himself said, I'm going to be responsible for all of this to come to be. I'm going to put you to sleep, and I alone am going to walk through this. Powerful moment, powerful moment in the nation of Israel, and a powerful moment for all people. Because the truth is, when I ask the question, why is it, here's the question I ask, why is it that God chose Abraham? Because Abraham had an incredible reach. In fact, the reason that we still name our children Abraham is because of his reputation. Why is it that God chose Abraham? What was it? And I began to ask the question, was it because of his family? And here's what we learn about in Joshua 24, chapter 2, that Abraham came from a family that didn't even believe in God. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So Abraham came from a home where they didn't even worship Yahweh. Why did God choose Abraham? Was it because his family was awesome? I would argue no. Why did God choose Abraham? Was it because that he was going to be perfect? He was going to be so faithful? I'd argue no. A couple times in the Old Testament we read of Abraham going to a new land and he gives his wife Sarah to the, um, to the king, to the Pharaoh, to, to, to have her because he's afraid because she's so beautiful. He says to her, listen, <laughs> for the sake of sparing my life and yours too, just say that you're my sister when we go to this new land. That way we'll both be spared because you're so beautiful they'll kill me and take you anyway. So just go with them. Now, can you imagine what that conversation would be like in your home if you did that to your wife? She came back a week, a month later. I can see the fear in all the men's eyes right now, right? That's terrible to do that, to put your wife in a situation where she's incredibly vulnerable. He did it not once, but twice. He was impatient with the promise of the seed and wanted the seed to come earlier, and so he agreed with his wife, Sarah, and he slept with his servant to try to force the issue. Even though God alone walked through there, Abraham was the one who said, no, I'm going to sleep with my maidservant here and see if we can start the line out because it's taking God too long. It wasn't because he was perfect. It wasn't because he was perfect. Why did God choose him? It wasn't because he was perfect. And I go to, to Paul when he wrote in Romans 4 about this. This is what kind of settles it for me. He, Paul writes it this way in Romans 4. He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, and that belief, that faith, not works, that belief, that was credited, was given to him, almost as a credit, as righteousness. 
So if Abraham was justified by works, sure, he had something to boast about. If Abraham's platform was built because he was so incredible and he was faithful, and he was incredibly faithful, by the way. I mean, his story about leaving his homeland when he was later in life and not knowing where he was going, that's a huge part of his story. He had an incredible faith commitment. And some of you know that he made a commitment to God that went so far as when God said, listen, I want you to sacrifice your firstborn son. It's crazy. Some of you have young children, just had young children. And God said, I want you to sacrifice your firstborn. What did Abraham do? He didn't actually push back against God. He said, okay, all right. And he walked for days sitting on that decision and for days pondering it and still followed through all the way to putting Isaac on the altar. And then finally at the last minute, God said, actually, I just wanted to give you this opportunity to demonstrate your own faith. Like, I'm not going to ask you to do this. His faith was incredible, right? It was incredible. But what was it that built his platform? What was it? Why is it that God chose Abraham? Was it because he was going to be incredible? Was it because he came from a family of great faith? Was it because he wasn't ever going to screw up? I would argue no, that at the end of the day, God unconditionally chose Abraham simply, I would say, because of his grace. Why not choose somebody else? Someone else could have been chosen. Abraham's platform, while as amazing as it is, was never built, was never built on the basis of his works or his own righteousness. I want to tell you a little bit about my story real quick, my backstory. Um, I remember when I was in college, my goal was to get out of um, school debt-free. Um, and that was important to me. And so what I did is I worked a couple summer jobs to make that happen. Uh, I worked 7 to 12 for a painter. I was really, really good at that. Really good at that. Yep. Anyhow, I was not that great at that. Uh, and then 2 to close at a restaurant. All right, I was a short order cook for a little while. So 7 to 12 and then 2 to close. Um, and I just kind of did that over and over. And the reason was I wanted I had a goal. I wanted to get out of college debt-free. And ultimately, I was able to do that. But I, as I reflect back on that time in my life where I ended up not having a major social life, as one can imagine, uh, that wouldn't allow for a lot of free time in the day, what it did allow for me to do is to subtly come to believe that, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good at this. A lot of people... Uh, showed their respect to me, and like, wow, good for you for doing that. And I realized, as I look back in that time in my life, that I began to judge my peers who began to pile up debt because they slept in or they spent money on things that I judged to be unnecessary to spend money on, car payments, etc. It seemed justified, and I wasn't trying to judge it, but I was. I didn't tell them I was judging it, but I was, and there were some things that I didn't notice because my eyes were on other people, not the grace given to me. I, I didn't notice in the middle of that season of my life, I didn't notice, I didn't pay attention to the fact that I lived in a home where meals were provided to me. I didn't process the weight of how I grew up in a home where few arguments were had, gave me a lot of margin. I didn't process that I grew up in a home where no one was addicted to drugs or nicotine or alcohol. I didn't process the grace given to me that I grew up in a church that helped me form character, supported my growing faith, helped shape morality in me. And so I took a pride in my work, um, especially in light of others. I felt like I deserved it. Like I earned the good things that came to me, and I began to feel that the good things in my life were the result of good decisions that I made, and my morality, my work, my consistency, to the detriment of truly being aware of the grace that was given to me, and I lost the foundation 
of God's grace in the midst of my view of my good decisions. So my perceived good decisions kind of became, I would say, the basis of my pride and my gratitude, or ingratitude, I'll put it that way. I forgot ultimately where things started. I failed to be grateful for the things given me, and as a result, began to slowly experience a kind of spiritual pride that settles in and makes you judgmental. Standing at a distance from those poor people who don't get all the good things that, that you do. The loss of this foundation of grace was a key factor for me, a key contributor to a form of spiritual pride that can look like, and look like for me, simply honorable character. Honorable character. But it can settle into our soul like a cancer that hardens our hearts. We forget where we came from. We don't forget in our minds. Like we know the gospel in our minds, but we forget in here if that makes sense. We can rehearse it intellectually, but we forget it in our soul. We lose touch with the depth of grace, especially when we keep reaping the benefits of good decisions. I don't like to be poor in spirit. I don't mind being middle class in spirit, but I don't like to be poor in spirit, but that's required to experience the mercy of God. And I would argue in my life, it's not until I experience grief or pain that my platform that I've built starts crumbling down, I begin to see where it was really formed in the first place. And so what I'm trying to talk about here is kind of a subtle spiritual pride that creeps in, and, but it comes in, for me at least, through the channels of wise and godly decisions. It's like these channels pipe in a kind of works righteousness gospel that corrupts our soul pipes in things that corrode and corrupt us. We strive to make godly decisions and lead godly lives, but spiritual pride develops when we lose touch with our starting point. We forget that we've been saved by grace despite all these awesome things that we have done. And I don't like being helpless. I don't know about you, but I don't like being helpless, and I don't like to think that my platform somehow wasn't really built by my awesomeness. And it's subtle, and it's dangerous, and it hardens our hearts, and it creates, it creates an incredible distance. And I think that's what bothers me the most, is it creates a distance that we don't always know exists that keeps people sometimes from experiencing the true grace and mercy of God. We were talking just um, yesterday, my wife and I were talking with someone um, who's a, an alumni of a Christian school, and they were talking about how the school, they believe, has created an elitist feel for being Christian. And this is in some ways what they were talking about, that it's as if the wise and godly decisions we make, which are good in and of themselves, can also bring with them some things that we don't always want and don't always see, and that is a, a works righteousness gospel that says the reason that you're good and on your platform is because you are good. You're good. You're good at that. You are good at that. And that's why you get the blessing that you get. That's why you get it. And as I begin to think about this problem, it, it, it subtly slides in for me at least, and maybe, maybe it does for you, maybe it doesn't. But as I begin to think about how do I deal with this, there's three things that came to mind for me. First of all is this, I want to encourage us to remember our starting point, to remember our starting point. What I mean by that is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, <laughs> that each of us is first of all an image bearer of God, made in God's image made perfectly in God's image, and, and right on the heels of that, we are, 
we are desperately fallen into sin. And we have no hope on our own for a Savior. And the good news of the gospel reminds me that despite all the good and incredible things that I do, those things on their own will never pull me up and out from my own self-salvation project. And so remembering our starting point and telling myself the gospel with regularity helps soften my heart for the things that sometimes can channel in and pump in a kind of spiritual pride. I want to encourage you also to do this, to engage with those outside the faith, outside the church, or outside your own family. Engaging with people on the outside of what you're used to in terms of a, sometimes you may hear the term, a Christian bubble, it allows us to hear and see pain, hurt, and striving, and connect the dots this way, that no amount of work can alleviate what people are really searching for, which goes along with this, and that is I want to encourage you to be present with other people's pain. I want to encourage you to be engaged with those outside our community and of faith and church and family because their pain that they experience is a pain that is a call to God's healing, to God's mercy. I have had the chance to talk with a fellow in our community who years ago, many years ago, a, decade, a couple decades ago, lost his wife. Um, she, she left him. Um, he went into a depression and then uh, a couple years later, he got a girlfriend. The girlfriend kind of uh, stirred again the hope in his heart that love is possible and felt again the reawakening of love and relationship and felt, uh, you know, kind of put back together again. And just as quickly as she came, she left, which plunged him into further depression. And now he, in his own shame, speaks about being addicted to alcohol in a way that he uh, is at home and doesn't like to go out and is pulling away from relationships, certainly he's pulled away from the church and is just in a, a, a dark place, struggling um, in a variety of ways. Now, what am I supposed to say to him or maybe what should you say to him? What is happening in his life? What's going on? And I could do a couple things. One, I could help him just simply get through that. Right? I could be like, let me help you build a platform, right? Let me, here, here we go. Let's talk about some habits to develop. Let's talk about some accountability that you can put into place. Let's talk about creating or building a structure in which we can get you out of depression. We can get you out of the habits of alcohol. We can get you out of that. We can start rebuilding your own confidence and your own identity. And let me help construct some things for you and with you. And while some of that is helpful and is necessary, I would argue, is necessary. It ultimately doesn't satisfy the deeper longing of his soul because his pain is telling him that there is something more here that exists. His shame is keeping him locked in place. His grief is reminding him that everything is broken on this side of the world, on this side of eternity. And what ultimately will satisfy this man is not just a platform that I can put together based on his works, and his righteousness. What ultimately will satisfy this man, I believe that his pain is calling him to find that which can truly satisfy the soul, that can carry the weight of what he really needs. And that I have found nothing else, nothing else that will satisfy that except the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope of the unconditional covenant of God who walks through those Animals alone and says, on the basis of me alone, I'm going to bring you blessing. Just, just, just believe in me. John 3.16, God's love the world. That whoever would believe in him 
would have everlasting life. Not whoever works the best and builds the best platform and is a good at doing all the things that we do, but whoever believes. This is our starting point. This is what gives us life. This is what his pain is pushing him toward, and what I can put around him is simply a a structure, a platform to help him get through it. It's not enough, and I think you know that and I know that, which is why I want to encourage you to engage with those outside of the faith in church because the pain that they're going through will never be satisfied by being great at work, by making a million dollars or two or ten, by being great at our hobbies or our exercises, being great at music, being great at art. Being, those things all have their place, but none of them satisfy the way that the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ does. So I want to encourage you to remember your starting point, to engage with those outside and let their pain draw you too into remembering where in the world have you come from? How is it that God has given you your platform? And how do you act on the stage and the platform that God has given you? Like Abraham, like Abraham, God has been incredibly merciful. And here's Abraham's message to me, if I can put it this way. That Abraham reminds me that when we're blessed, it's not because we're great. It is because of God's grace alone. It's not because I'm great, but it is because of God's grace. Abraham wasn't chosen because he's great. He's deeply flawed. He made some incredible decisions, incredible faith, man. I respect him deeply. But it wasn't because he's awesome that he was chosen. It was because of the unconditional blessing and grace of God. So for me, and I hope for you, you can be encouraged with Abraham's backstory. A man of incredible faith, yes. But his platform, his platform was the mercy of God to call him. And your platform what you act out on in your incredible gifts is the same thing. It's not because you're just great. It's because of the grace and mercy of God. And I hope, I hope that the gospel can continue to remind and soften each of us that when we interact with people in this world who are going through pain and looking for the hope that truly exists, that we don't just give them a platform, that we just don't give them ideas, I do have another option. Thank you. My hope is, is simply that. That the things that you go through and that I go through, the ways that we work, the things that we do to, to keep our lives going in great directions, that we can keep doing them, but that we don't ever become so deceived that we think somehow we've created this amazing life for ourselves. The gratitude, the blessing of God, the gratitude for the blessing of God becomes something that continues to soften our hearts so that people experience a God of mercy, grace, and kindness in the middle of a world that's in deep pain and deep hardship. All right, that's Abraham's backstory, my take on it at least. Will you pray with me here this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning to spend a few minutes in the life of Abraham and the opportunities that he had with his platform to be a blessing to so many people. We thank you for your mercy and grace, and I pray that you would help us as we walk through our day-to-day -day lives. There, there are so many gifts that you've given to us, to each of us in this room, gifts of hospitality, of mercy. Uh, there are here people here with incredible business acumen and skill. 
the people here who are great leaders, who are thoughtful, who are kind, who are incredible grandparents, who are children that are creative with their abilities and their arts and music and sports. And so many gifts that you've given us. I pray that you would help us build those gifts, to use them really, really well, but never to forget our starting point. It's because of your mercy, your unconditional commitment to your people, that we even have the privilege of building anything to begin with. So may you continue to draw us by your grace to be people who impact this world with that same grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.